Well, good morning, Christ City. My name is Heath. I am part of the team here. Um, our, you may be seated. As much fun as it might be for me to have you stand the whole time, I can guarantee you will not appreciate that. Our, uh, our text this morning is Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, as we continue in our series on evangelism, the, the, the topic of our sermon this morning is evangelism and doing good. I find it a little ironic that this particular subject happens to coincide with a reminder that we've had in the last two weeks of a horrible injustice in our country's history. An injustice part and partial, parcel with, hand in hand, conjunction with the institutional church. I can't, I can't go on and talk about doing good as a Christian without acknowledging this reality where society and the church have failed. I, as a Christian, cannot speak of the hope that I have, which I have, and ignore this reality. Now, I've had, as you can imagine, many, many, many dialogues on the downtown east side about this issue this week. But one conversation stands out. A friend of mine, who's a First Nations guy, he's in his 60s. In his gentle, polite way over a barbecue, he says, Heath, can I ask you a question? Why is the church silent? My response, I must confess, was feeble and weak. And I said, uh, I don't know, but it shouldn't be. But it shouldn't be. I can't ignore this, Christ City. You can't ignore this. We as the church cannot ignore this. So as a small, small thing, as a small start, I would like for us right now to stand, to bow your heads, and we're going to observe a moment of silence. You may be seated. On the screen behind me, we'll come up with words of a prayer, and I'd like to pray this together. God of grace, 
We confess that we have elevated the things of this world above you. We have made idols of possessions and people and used your name for causes that are not consistent with you or your purposes. We have permitted our schedules to come first and we have not taken the time to worship you. We have not always honored those who have guided us in life, and we have participated in systems that take life instead of give it. We have been unfaithful in our covenant relationships. We have yearned for and sometimes taken that which is not ours, and we have misrepresented others' intentions. Forgive us, O God, for the many ways we fall short of your glory. Help us to learn to live together according to your ways through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we look at the interplay of evangelism and good works this morning, in order to not repeat the same mistakes that we have made, we must understand three things this morning. We must understand the need for doing good. We must understand the means to do good, and then the evangelistic dynamic and the effect of those good works. I, like some of you seated here today, have the privilege to work on the downtown east side. If you spend any time, or even if you drive through, you cannot, be, you cannot ignore the unsolvable need that seems to exist there. The loneliness, the homelessness, the sickness, the drug addiction, the mental illness, the abject poverty. It's all on display to see. But as you begin to invest in people and see people for who they are, you begin to ask questions like, what are the root causes of these things? How come, how come the government funding hasn't solved the issues? Now, some of the answers are sociopolitical. Some of them are based on intergenerational trauma. Others are rooted in systematic apathy and, and racism. But under those very real causes, there's a biblical understanding that we need to address this morning. In a general sense, biblically speaking, we look at the world and we can see that people find themselves in places of hardship and poverty for three reasons. There are other reasons, but these are the three biblical ones that we see when we study the scripture. The first is natural disasters. The second is forms of oppression. And thirdly, personal moral failure. You know, we get it. Wildfires, famine, disease, tsunami, earthquakes, floods, COVID. Yeah, we get it. These things are outside of human control, and they can place us in, in areas of need. We can go from, from doing well to a place of need in a fire that wipes out your home. You can go from being well to having a flash flood come through and taking your whole home away. You go from a place of security to need in a blink of an eye. I loved as a kid listening to my grandparents tell stories of the Great Depression in the 1930s. Yeah, I'm that old. And it was a really interesting experience to talk about doing well to not doing well. COVID, interestingly enough, has placed us right here, right now in that situation. Some of you I know are doing really well. Others of you are not so well. The second reason why people find themselves in areas of need is due to forms of oppression. Turn with me to Leviticus 19. In unequal power situations and dynamics, because of the, ter- the temptation as humans is very real to actually take advantage of another for your own benefit, God, writing to his people, he says and gives them a bunch of a list of rules so that people who are weak, poor, widowed, marginalized, and oppressed, that they would not be done to. So turn with me to Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. And just kind of listen to the flow and, the, and, the, and capture the, the understanding behind it. When you reap the harvest of your land, 
You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. This was to make sure that people who were landless had actual food. And you shall not strip bare your vineyard vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This This is so the people who had nothing could have wine to drink. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Fair, equitable, right? You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord. Fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, and you shall not you reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take advantage or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. These ancient codes were written to protect the ones in society who could not protect themselves, to guard against systematic oppression. Oppression, exploitation of the weakest in society, can best be expressed as advantaging oneself at the expense and disadvantage of another. Put another way, oppression or bias towards selfish individualism rather than concern for the common good. The Bible says that this is wickedness, foolishness, and sin. Whether, the issue, whether it's an issue of slavery, whether it's, it's armed conflict and wars, whether it's residential schools, skewed justice systems, workers' rights, gender bias, racial inequity, inferior education, financial exploitation, if someone or a segment of society, if they're in a position of power over somebody else and they use that for their own benefit, that is oppression. It locks people into cycles of need and it contributes to brokenness that we see generationally and societally. And the last contributor to people in need is the category of personal moral failure. Now, this is a tricky one. It's a double-edged sword and it's difficult. We have this expression in our culture that says, you get what you deserve. Now, I categorically deny the universality of that statement. Sometimes, it's true, cause and effect. But sometimes, we get what other people deserve, don't we? Sometimes, we get what other people deserve, and we bear the consequences for their sin, for another culture's sin. And that locks people into into cycles of trauma and need. So what happens then in the response to that trauma? I decide, well, I'm going to deal with it myself, and I'm going to, and, and I'm going to you know, self-medicate or, or steal or, or do something. And what it does is that their sin causes me to sin, and it locks into a generational cycle of downward sin. Sin has consequences. But sin has also consequences for those around us. And the cycle repeats over and over and over again. Now look, nobody thinks that smoking meth is an awesome ticket to a, you know, a longevity of happiness, do they? You have to ask, what is the purpose for their using? 
You can't just say, oh, you you just got to stop. You have to ask, why are you using? More often than not, the more people I talk to, people people self-medicate because of trauma done to them, often as children. Let me tell you an example. My grandfather left the family when my mom was like eight years old. So my grandmother did the only thing in the 50s that she could do was she remarried. And my step-grandfather's proclivity to drink too much alcohol led to abuse of not only my grandmother, but her four innocent children, which in turn, one generation later, led to me dealing with the fallout of the brokenness of both my grandfather's sin. But I'm fortunate. My cousins, my aunt, my uncles are locked into a cycle of poverty, of crime, of brokenness, and addiction. My family on my mom's side is like an episode of Ozark meets Breaking Bad. I kid you not. You can laugh. Relieve the tension. That's the reality of my family. That's where I come from. You see, Christ City, we privatize our sin, and we think that no one else is affected. Hear me. Our personal sin has societal consequences. And sometimes moral failure traps us, and sometimes our moral failure traps others. And, and we have this, it has this cumulative effect in culture and society. See, as you can see, people in need, it's not an area that's cut and dry. The marginalized, the poor, the people that you see on the street, this is a complicated situation. But it's not a new one. It's not even a political situation. It's a human situation, and it's sin. In conjunction with calamity, systematic forms of oppression and consequences of personal moral failure are the result of which that traps people into this cycle. The Bible calls this sin. We are trapped in sin. We are longing for freedom. We're longing for justice. We are longing for someone to help, someone to do good rather than evil. We long for what Proverbs calls the man of wisdom, for someone that will disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the other, the marginalized, the poor, and the enslaved. We need something outside of our situation to advocate for us, to save us. This is the reality at the very heart of good works. We need something outside of our situation to save us. This is why we need our second point, the gospel, the means of good works. Turn with me to our text in Luke 4, and I'll read it again. And he came, Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue, and on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, a little bit of background information to help us understand the full weight of this text. Throughout the entirety of the history of Israel. Now, if you take your Bible and you read it from Genesis to Matthew, 
you will see that there has, there's been a longing, a desire, a building expectation that bursts forth in Jesus of an expectant savior, a Messiah, someone who will put all things right, who will restore justice. Prophet after prophet after prophet would speak of one sent by God who would right wrongs. One sent by God to restore justice. One sent by God to care for the poor, the marginalized, and the weak, and the oppressed. See, this scroll that Jesus reads is from Isaiah 61, one of the the highlights or the clearest prophetic utterances concerning this particular Savior. And of mic drops, of all mic drops, Jesus says, hey, this is me. That is profound. Jesus says, it is in me. I am the one you're waiting for. I am the savior of Israel. And he says, I will take your brokenness and your oppression and I will make it whole. I will free you. I will save you and I will restore you. And this is true Christ City for us today. This is true for us today. We are longing for the man of wisdom. Someone who disadvantages himself for the benefit of the other, for the weak, the poor, and the marginalized. We need something outside of our situation, someone outside of our situation to save us, and that someone, Christ City, is Jesus. He is quite literally the means to do good work. Jesus bears all the consequences of, our, of the broken Levitical laws, because we've broken all of those. He bears all the consequences of our moral failures, and he dies in our place for when, when we have been the oppressor of peoples. In his victory over death, he advocates for us before the Father and those who are broken in spirit, those who are oppressed, and those who are free are made whole. Now, G.I. Packer, the late G.I. Packer, has a unique clarity of expressing that, that truth this way. He says, the gospel does not bring us solutions to the problems of suffering and injustice, It does, rather, but it does so by first solving the deepest of all human problems, the problem of man's relation to his maker. And unless we make it plain that the solution of the former problem depends on the settling of the latter one, we are misrepresenting the message and becoming false witnesses of God. Christ said, our efficacy, our means to do good, is is not in our superior ideas. It's not in our good ethics or our morality, no. Our good works are sourced completely, wrought by the work of Jesus on the cross to restore our relationship with God. The gospel change that is affected in our hearts then, then has a ripple effect in others' lives by good works. Do not mistake, Christ City, the gospel for the effects of the gospel. Our good works are an outflow of this change accomplished by Jesus. Now, I know a guy who a year and a half ago was living in a tent in Oppenheimer Park. Someone showed him kindness. Someone helped him out. Someone preached to him the gospel. Somebody somebody told him about Jesus, got him a home. And this guy now has a job, and he regularly helps other people because his life has been changed. This brings us to our third point, the evangelistic effect of good works. Now, as I stated earlier, my family is pretty broken. But I need to tell you, I need to tell you the reason why my story is different than my extended family. When my mother was a child, 
a young couple who were new Christians at the time. (laughs) They had had a healing in their hearts and their marriage was put back together. And as a result, they looked around their community and thought, well, how can we help? So they saw, they noticed a vulnerable sector of of their city. And they opened their home and they took in teenagers, particularly girls from broken and abusive family situations. They showed them love. They showed them value. They showed them that they were, had worth and had a purpose. And they showed them the means by which they acted. They introduced these girls to Jesus. This couple, my spiritual grandparents, were compelled to action by the gospel. They in themselves had been freed. And over the years, dozens upon dozens upon dozens of girls met Jesus through Daryl and Joanne. They were a living metaphor of the gospel in these girls' lives. They disadvantaged themselves for the benefit of rebellious teenage girls. Now, can you imagine a whole house full of rebellious teenage girls? I can't imagine anything scarier. It took a couple through the power of the gospel, engaged in good work, saw the value of a broken little girl. My mom was the first one. They took her in. They showed her love. They proclaimed to her the gospel and they gave her tools to forgive and survive her dysfunctional family situation. I stand here before you quite literally because of the gospel work of Daryl and Joanne McGee 50 years ago. Think about the ripple effect of their good works in my mom's life over the years. The ripple effect of somebody's good works led to anarchists finding Jesus in Greece. Think about that. That is the effect of gospel change in your heart and doing good works. The principle is this. The gospel change that is affected in our hearts has a ripple effect in our lives lived out by good works. It's an inside-out thing. Our evangelistic dynamic is directly proportional to how much the gospel has changed us personally. Our evangelistic dynamic, our ability to do good works, to be able to forgive one another, even the deepest trauma is based on the work and the change wrought by Jesus in our hearts. My spiritual grandparents were radically changed by Jesus and the ripple effect, it's in probably 70 or 80 girls. This is just but one example of the power, the evangelistic power of good works. I can tell you story after story after story after story from the downtown east side to refugees fleeing war-torn Syria and Afghanistan to providing skills for the unemployed to actively, proactively helping girls out of traffic situations. I have seen this reality played out time and time again all across the globe. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Verses 35 through 38. Jake referenced this last week, but I need to, I need to deal with this again. We, do not, we need to hear this again and again and again. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, in Luke chapter 4, we saw Jesus declaring himself as the one promised to free people. To free people from oppression, from bondage, from slavery. In Matthew chapter 9, right here, we see Jesus actively engaged in this very work. He proclaimed. He did what he taught. He lived what he said he was. And he healed people, taught them the good news of the kingdom. And what was his motivation? His motivation, his impetus for engagement was what? Compassion. Compassion. He looked, he saw the crowds, and he had compassion for them. He saw people who were lost, who were adrift, who were broken, wayward sheep without anyone to protect them. In Jesus, we see the very heart of God for those who are at the margins of society. When your heart is changed by the gospel, you have the capacity to see people as Jesus sees people. You have the capacity to have compassion on people like Jesus has compassion on people. And then, and then you, have the, you can become the very thing in which Jesus calls us to pray for. We actually can become laborers in his harvest, someone who disadvantages yourself for someone else. This is the evangelistic dynamic of good works. So a couple of things to consider as we close. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, great. I already suck at evangelism. You mean to tell me I have to go down to the downtown east side now and actually do some good works? I've got a busy schedule. I can't fit in one more thing. And so by default, what do we do? We do nothing. We've all been there. Now, some of you might be living in the grip of trauma right now, and you can't even hear what I'm saying. To you, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Others, you'll hear this, and and motivated out of guilt, you'll do better, you'll try harder. You know, you will engage in good works, and eventually those good works will eat you alive. You will burn out. You will become burdened and hardened and bitter and angry. I've seen this happen time and time again because you've sourced the power of your good works in yourself rather than in the gospel. So as a practical application as we close, I would like us to engage in a couple of things. Firstly, if you've not surrendered to Jesus, surrender to Jesus. Will you surrender to the one who can free you? Do you know him? Do you recognize that it's through him disadvantaging himself that you can be free? Now, if you, if you haven't done that or, and if you need to, come talk to me afterwards. I'll be at the back or somewhere around. You can find me, I know. Or you can email me, Heath at ChristCityChurch.ca. I would love to introduce you to Jesus. The second thing that we can do, and this is profound, is that we can pray. Recognizing that it's through Jesus that we can actually do good works, I ask you, I beg you, I implore you for the rest of this month, Every day, pray, Lord, help me see people the way you see people. Pray, give me compassion for people like you have compassion. When when you begin to pray that, I can guarantee you, 
opportunities to, good, to do good work will just pop up. So then that leaves you with a dilemma. And the third thing, act. Will you consider how you can act when those opportunities arise? See, Christ City, approaching good works in this way, it's not cumbersome or burdensome. Over time, these, this pattern of prayer and act, it will actually help you to become cognizant of those people who are struggling in need around you. And, it will, and through the power of the gospel, when you recognize that, you can actually engage in those things. Christ City, the gospel change that is affected in our hearts has a ripple effect in others' lives by good works. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this message of hope. We acknowledge in areas of our life where we have failed and we rely wholly upon the work of your son, the one who has purposely disadvantaged himself for the benefit of us. So Lord, I ask that you'd help us to pray. Give us insight. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as you do. So in this I pray. Amen. Christ City, in a, as we respond, we'll do so in a few ways. We'll, Josh will lead us in some singing. We will give at the back. Uh, you can connect at the connect table. There's a give machine there. If Christ City is your home, you can give and give generously. You can pray. I'm sure Jake will be at the back ready and willing to pray for anybody who needs prayer. Alternatively, you can email me, heath at christcitychurch.ca, and I would love to pray for you this week. And lastly, we'll take communion together. It is in this event that we weekly confess that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to free both the oppressed and the oppressor. Jesus is the one who disadvantages himself for our behalf, on behalf of the weak, the poor, and the marginalized. As we break bread and as we pour out the wine, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is our advocate, and his, his lifeblood has been poured out for us. It's through him that we actually have the power to act and do good works. If you're here this morning or if you're online and you don't believe this, that's okay. We just ask that you do not participate in this. So Christ said to hear the words from Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And as we read and as we sing, we can partake together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Partake when you are ready.